0: Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm
1: April Glazer. And I'm Siva Vaidyanathan.
0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, April 23rd. You'll notice I'm joined once again by Siva Vaidyanathan who's guest hosting again this week. Siva is the director of the Center for Media and Citizenship at the University of Virginia. He's also the author of a book called Anti-Social Media, How Facebook Disconnects Us and Undermines Democracy, and the book The Googleization of Everything. Siva, thanks for coming on again.
1: Oh, April, thanks again for having me back. I had such a great time talking with you last week and being part of the show last week. And then even better, the reaction and response I got from the listening audience was uh, really outstanding.
0: And I got some emails, too, which I should forward to you. People really did enjoy your interview with Andy Greenberg. If you didn't catch that last week, please do and subscribe. On today's show, we'll talk about how the Sri Lankan government shut down Facebook and WhatsApp after the attacks on Easter Sunday that killed nearly 300 people.
1: After that, we're going in on a key part of the Mueller report, the Russian cyber attack on the Democratic National Committee and the release of documents through WikiLeaks, as well as an odd persona invented by Russian intelligence. Joining us to discuss this is Lorenzo Franceschi bicchieri a writer for Motherboard who has corresponded directly with some of the Kremlin-linked hackers.
0: And as always, we'll end with Don't Close My Tabs, some of the best things we saw on the web this week. But this week, we have a very special guest joining us for the end of the show. That's all coming up on If Then.
2: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval, terms apply.
0: Okay, Siva, so let's actually hop into the news because sadly there is another tragedy this weekend. In Sri Lanka, 300 people or almost 300 people died after a series of bombings on Easter Sunday at churches and in cities across the country. And in response to that, the government decided to shut down access to Facebook. And that has had a mixed response throughout the world. I mean, my initial and I think a lot of people's initial response was, well, maybe this would help stop the spread of disinformation after a tragedy but that quickly became a much more complicated picture. Can you help us kind of unpack what's going on there?
1: Sure. Well, you know, when you look at one of these events, one of these terrible events where uh, social media services are possibly implicated, uh, it's always important to remember the specificity, the specific history and politics of the place we are talking about. So Sri Lanka is still emerging, Uh, It's about 10 years after the end of a 20-year civil war, a civil war that was largely fought between the Buddhist majority, about 70% of the country is Sinhalese in ethnicity and language, and and they're almost all Buddhist, and the Tamil minority. And the Tamils are about 16% of the population, and they're overwhelmingly Hindu, but there are a large number of Christians, Tamils as well, and most of those Christians are Catholic, So this attack on Easter Sunday was directly at the Catholic minority. There were also attacks on hotels, by the way, in some of the larger cities that seemed to be aimed at foreigners, at foreign tourists, something we've seen time and time again with these sorts of terrorist attacks.
0: And, you know, this is not the first time that the government in Sri Lanka has decided to close down access to social media after a tragedy. Uh, This happened in March of last year, right, after two people were killed and multiple others injured in an anti-Muslim series of riots in a tourist district in Sri Lanka.
1: Sri Lanka-like. Several places in the world, much like it, has experienced a lot of ethnic and religious violence very recently, clearly fueled by the spread of rumor, disinformation, misinformation, hate speech. On WhatsApp and Facebook. I mean, that, that definitely happened in 2018. Things are still tense. The targets of that violence were members of the Muslim minority in Sri Lanka. Uh, and so the government was very on edge about that. I mean, the government definitely does not want ethnic and racial strife breaking out before uh, an upcoming election later this year.
0: Right. And so it seems that it's a bit of a circular rationale here, right? Where social media has caused a lot of uh, disagreement and uh, kind of hate to perpetuate. And so one way to stop the spread of that is to just shut it down. But then that also limits access to other information, too, right? Because These platforms have become essential conduits for people. I mean, essentially, Facebook, because of the Internet.org efforts of Facebook, where it offers uh, free access to just certain parts of the Internet, primarily Facebook and a few other websites it partners with, um, has kind of become the Internet for people in this part of the world.
1: That's right. So Sri Lanka is one of those places in the world where Facebook and WhatsApp are the dominant communication systems for most people. They're the dominant sources of information for most people. They are how people connect with their family and friends, uh, not only in Sri Lanka, but beyond Sri Lanka. So they've, they've grown into such deeply important parts of people's lives, that any uh, effort to shut them down creates chaos and havoc and anxiety uh, among people who have either nothing to do with the event uh, or, I think perhaps more importantly, those who actually have been touched by the event, right? So if you were close to one of the bombings or you attended church at one of the bombings uh, and you wanted to tell your friends and relatives that you were okay. You had no way to do that in the wake of these bombings as these services were turned off. Uh, You know, and it's one of those things where it's also important to remember that the Easter Sunday attacks were not fomented by social media. These were more classic terrorist attacks organized by a complicated and well-trained network of terrorists. Uh, And they weren't examples of mass mob violence that kind of Violence we have seen in Sri Lanka even recently.
0: Right. And I mean, really what we're talking about when the government shuts down forms of communication, that really could be classified as a form of censorship and and really has a kind of an authoritarian tinge to it. And it's something that we really need to keep mind of when we talk about you know, wanting the government to rein in these companies or at least force them to be more accountable to their user base, they have become essential like essential conduits of communication and information. And asking the government to just shut them down or, like, you know, I remember when the UN released a report on the violence in Myanmar against Rohingya communities, another journalist asked, you know, why not just shut Facebook down there? And then a number of people who I, I spoke to who work with uh, – In the country said that that would actually be really stifling to communication there and could possibly, you know, make things worse and be very destabilizing for people and in a way that they wouldn't be able to necessarily just like bounce back and recover from and live a life without Facebook so easily
1: you know, in both Myanmar and in Sri Lanka, these are not free societies in the first place. These are not societies with a free press. These are societies where information is already suppressed, where dissidents are already suppressed and tortured and imprisoned. Uh, And the shutdown of WhatsApp and Facebook is sort of par for the course. So first of all, we shouldn't be surprised that that happened. But secondly, we shouldn't celebrate it blankly, right? Because what might work in India or what might work in the Philippines or what might work in Australia or New Zealand isn't necessarily going to work in Sri Lanka. We have to pay attention to the specific aspects, the history and the social tensions of a specific place. Facebook, after all, is really a local and regional phenomenon to everybody in the world. There is no such thing as a global universal experience of Facebook. Facebook is tailored very specifically to places around the world and people adapt it to their own needs around the world. We have to keep that in mind. You can't come to any general conclusions about how to handle these sorts of phenomena around the world.
0: Right. Uh, Facebook is local, wherever it's used. And I think that's very important to remember. It's not a community in and of itself. Uh, But let's move on to the next segment now because we have a fantastic interview lined up with Lorenzo Franceschi Bichieri, a writer for Motherboard who corresponded directly with a group of Kremlin-link hackers who pretended to be a persona called Guccifer or Guccifer 2.0. There's a bit of a debate about how to pronounce his name. We might get into that, too. That's all coming up next.
1: The overly redacted Mueller report was released last week and it offered all kinds of revealing details into Russia's interference in the 2016 U.S. presidential elections. This included the strange and destabilizing cyber attack on the Democratic National Committee, where troves of documents and emails were made public by a group of Kremlin-linked hackers. The leaks dominated the news cycle and provided a massive boost to Donald Trump's political campaign at key moments in the elections. As I was reading the Mueller report just earlier this week, I kept thinking, this is all so 21st century. I mean, how did all this happen? How did names like Guccifer and Assange and WikiLeaks have such an influence on the world's most powerful democracy. Our guest today has written a lot about this hack and has even corresponded, awkwardly at times, with the hackers directly. Lorenzo Franceschi Bicciera is a staff writer for Motherboard with Vice. He covers hacking, information security, and our rights online. Lorenzo, thank you for joining us. Thank you guys for having me.
0: Yeah, so let's start with some kind of timeline sketching here. My understanding, it was like the day after the CrowdStrike report, and this is the report that came from the investigation into the hacks into the uh, DNC servers were were released. That It was reported that, yes, there were hackers that accessed the servers, and they appeared to be from Russia. The day after that, a character that went by the name of uh, Guccifer Guccifer, 2.0 comes out of the woodwork, and this was in June, right?
3: Yeah, exactly. I think it was 24 hours or something uh, after the news broke that uh, Russian hackers had hacked the DNC. And the way that uh, Guccifer 2.0 or 2.0, whatever, um, announced or claimed to be the person behind the hack was that they created a Twitter account and uh, also a WordPress account where they released like a statement saying, this wasn't Russia, it was actually me. Here's some proof.
0: Right. And then just some more broad stroke timing here. It was, I think, just a few days before the convention, the Democratic National Convention, that WikiLeaks released the hacked emails that were retrieved by the Russian hackers and then – Days after the Access Hollywood tape, the or I'm sorry, not days, but the day of, rather, the Access Hollywood tape where Trump admitted to sexually assaulting just someone, the Podesta emails came out. Uh, so it just the timing was just kept kind of following a news cycle that could have been very damaging to Trump. But these emails uh, kept coming out or this character kept coming out of the woodwork at these opportune times. Uh, let's start by kind of talking about who this character first purported to be.
3: Yeah, when Guccifer 2.0 came out, he claimed to be a Romanian hacker because the whole story that he was trying to push was that, you know, the official narrative was wrong, uh, that the hackers behind the DNC hack were not Russians, uh, that it was him, you know, just a lone Romanian hacker. And so when this happened, we just decided, well, we thought, let's, you know, let's talk to him and see what he says. So we talked to him for a while and... um, you know, I asked him about the hack, how he did it, um, and some details about how he did it were already like kind of confusing because um, they just didn't make sense with what we knew from uh, CrowdStrike and the DNC itself. So, so I had in my chat and I, and just to give listeners the context, I'm I'm chatting with this person on Twitter because uh, that's the only way at that point to contact him, and I say, okay, well, who are you? Like, what can you tell me about yourself? Um, and yeah, he says that he's a Romanian hacker, um, that he's not Russia, he doesn't even care about Russia, he says that he doesn't care about the, the elections in the United States. And so I thought, okay, let's try to see if he can actually prove to be a Romanian hacker. So I logged into Google Translate and started like um, sending him messages in Romanian, uh, which I don't speak, but Google Translate helped. Um, and he answered uh, to a few of them, uh, but then he's sort of like, a, lost patience and was like, you're wasting my time, I have to go and kind of left. Um, and then we we showed the chat logs to a few Romanian speakers and they told us that Guccifer's uh, Romanian just did not look like uh, the Romanian of a native speaker
0: the character that you were chatting with was a a, a bit flippant right if i if i'm quoting correctly from the story from uh 2016 he said or it the the group of hackers said i'm a hacker manager philosopher woman lover i also like gucci i bring the light yeah. to people i'm a freedom fighter so you can choose what you like right just this very kind of abrasive almost like a yeah. caricature of a of, uh, anonymous hacker
3: yeah it was very biz- bizarre I, I, at the time I didn't know if it was this was like I don't know it was just trolling me or you know maybe he was young uh, you know it, at the time it was hard to tell but it was clear that he was in part in some parts he was lying like that that, that much was clear right um, so yeah w- we ran the story saying that Basically, this guy was lying and it looked it really looked like um, this whole persona was just uh, an attempt by the Russians to, you know, confuse readers and and listeners.
0: But this is a big deal because you're potentially whoever you think you're talking with, you're potentially talking to a group of hackers that are revealing very important kind of state political information and trying to destabilize U.S. elections. I mean, that must have just been kind of staggering to think that you're actually talking with them.
3: Yeah, I mean, when when we finally got the confirmation, I guess uh, you know, two years later, when the indictments came out, actually naming the GRU, which is the Russian military intelligence, um, you know, behind the persona, like I finally realized that yes, you know, that Guccifer two person was someone you know working for Vladimir Putin. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, it was very bizarre to to have that confirmation and to have the real, that realization
0: why why did they go with this Guccifer 2.0 obviously a play on Gucifer if those who aren't not familiar was a, a hacker who uh, was I think found by the FBI before and he had retrieved a number of things including if I'm correct the uh, a painting by George Bush can you can you tell us a little bit about the first Gucifer and, and why you think they went with the second iteration as their fake persona
3: yeah so the the first Guccifer was an actual Romanian hacker um, is now in custody in the U.S. And uh, yes, as you said, like he, he hacked into some, uh, he stole some uh, information from George Bush, including like uh, pictures of his paintings. Uh, I think uh, he sent them to Gawker, and that's how we even uh, found out that George Bush was painting stuff. Uh, but anyway, like he was, it was this sort of like very strange hacker who didn't really have uh, a motivation other than you know i guess it's just like hacking public figures and exposing them um, so you know obviously i don't know why the russians chose this name from what we know about uh, you know the the people behind Guccifer 2 i guess what we can guess is that they wanted to they wanted to pretend to be romanian and they wanted to pretend to be sort of like uh, someone that was inspired by this for, or other Guccifer. and actually there is a, there is some history of um, the the russian intelligence like pretending to be others i think in the case of the it was called the yemeni or yemen cyber army this was a, a persona that the russian intelligence came up with uh, to claim a hack against saudi arabia i think a few years ago and uh, the yemen cyber army didn't exist but like it was kind of a play on the Syrian cyber army so basically what I'm trying to say is that they have tried to muddy the waters and um, you know misattribute their own hacks by creating personas that seem to be inspired by other famous hackers
1: so, Lorenzo, I am uh, I need some clarification on uh, on how this all came together. Like, uh, could you tell us a bit how WikiLeaks and Guccifer started to collaborate? Like, wh- How long did they have a relationship? What was their relationship? What can we make mm-hmm. of this relationship?
3: Yeah, I think we still don't know the full extent of um, Guccifer 2's and WikiLeaks' relationship, but we learned quite a big deal from the indictment and the Mueller report. Um, and in short, basically, at some point, Guccifer two uh, reached out to WikiLeaks um, offering information on Hillary Clinton and the DNC. And there was a correspondence, I think, over Twitter. They did chat over Twitter and then corresponded by email. And that's how WikiLeaks ended up publishing some of the DNC, um, some stolen DNC documents.
1: Now, now WikiLeaks seemed to publish the documents at at particular times too, right? Like, uh, uh, what do you make of the timing of the dumps or the timing of the leaks and, and how WikiLeaks was involved in it? Was this something that Guccifer was also involved in? Was it purely uh, a set of WikiLeaks decisions? What can we make of that?
3: I don't know exactly whose decision it was, but um, historically, WikiLeaks has always been very good at timing the releases. I think this is something that even Assange uh, said publicly. Like, they... They always try to release um, leaks when it's going to do the, the most amount of uh, impact. But yes, in the in the case of the DNC and the, also the Podesta leaks which did not come from from Guccifer but they also came from you know Russian intelligence, uh, the timing was incredible. like it was basically like they did it at the best time, right like uh, April you mentioned um, the Axis olive tape I think. Like, when they started releasing the Podesta emails on that day, you know, that was the perfect timing to distract people from the, the Axis Oliver tape and, and you know, basically change the narrative that, you know, every journalist on earth was uh, writing about that day.
1: So, Lorenzo, the, this brings me to a, a much larger question, too, because when you look at all of these uh, break-ins of 2016, and there have been, of course, a number of very serious security breaches both within the U.S. government and public officials and they, even public officials' private email uh, systems over the past decade, it seems like we have been very slow to learn. It seems like uh, there was abysmal security, perhaps almost no security, for the top officials of the Democratic National Committee and perhaps even the Republican National Committee. You know, it seems to me like the only server that didn't get breached was the notorious server in Hillary Clinton's basement. Uh, as someone who studies cybersecurity generally, um, what do you make of our 20-year experience with these systems?
3: Well, well, you you know, I'm always a little hesitant to blame victims and uh, sort of, uh, you know, go go off and say that, you know, everything is terrible and, like, uh, the security was awful everywhere. I mean, obviously, like, the campaigns uh, could have done better, you know, like uh, the Hillary campaign— could have forced like two-factor authentication, which they weren't at the time. That would have uh, at least slowed down the hackers. Um, and you know, since then, uh, companies like Google have uh, made some changes that make it easier for people using uh, Google accounts, which was the case uh, of the Hillary campaign. They make it easier to like secure these accounts. So, you know, obviously, when there is a breach, someone has screwed up, right? Um, but also, we have to think that. You know, in this case, the adversary, to use a, you know an infosec lingo, um, you know, the adversary in this case, the Russian Russian government, were very dedicated. They had a lot of time. They had a lot of resources, um, and that was this was their mission, right? Like their mission was break into as many accounts as you can, and and they did. You know, they tried to fish um, and trick people. Um, you know, thousands of people, hundreds of people. But yeah, what we learned is that. Uh, during an election, would they should people should be worried about their accounts and their servers because, you know, the Russians are interested, but, you know, the Chinese may be interested as well. All the governments will be interested.
1: So, yeah. Well, Lorenzo, thank you so much for joining us today on If Then. Thank you guys so much. This was fun.
0: One final quick break and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best things we've seen on the web this week and this week with a special guest.
2: First,
4: the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of
2: your family's holiday photos. It will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, identify
4: the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations, so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI.
0: It's time again for Don't Close My Tabs, where we talk about some of our favorite things we saw on the web this week. But I'm shaking things up a bit because a fantastic cover story was published on Tuesday on the pages of Slate.com, or in the pages of Slate.com, rather, by Slate writer Rachel Hampton. It's entitled The Black Feminists Who Saw the Alt-Right Threat Coming. And it is about uh, some of the very early victims of trolling online and on Twitter specifically, and who kind of had to organize against and were attacked by mobs of racists and sexists, I think even before Gamergate, right Rachel?
4: Yes, it was actually a few months before Gamergate.
0: It was when the trolls were kind of revving up and kind of flexing some tactics that we're now quite familiar with many years later. Can you give us kind of the year that this started and kind of the scene and the situation where you begin your reporting?
4: Yeah, definitely. So it's the weekend of Father's Day 2014, so June 2014. And this hashtag started trending worldwide called In Father's Day. And to a casual observer, it looks like the work of radical black feminists, um, basically saying ridiculous things like In Father's Day because all these white women are taking our good black men or In Father's Day until men stop raping and killing us and all these other things that are kind of walking the line of critical race theory or critical gender theory, but just don't make sense to anyone who's actually feminist. And so it's predictable catnip to a bunch of conservatives like Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson does a segment on it. Um, Someone at the Washington Examiner does a segment on it. Ben Shapiro jumps on it, but it turns out that the accounts that were tweeting out the hashtag were all mostly fake. The hashtag was basically a campaign started by these participants on 4chan to drive a wedge between white feminists and black feminists by painting black feminists as like hysterical and reactionary and basically not making any sense.
0: Right. And and so they started making fake troll accounts, specifically targeting a demographic, putting words in their mouth. And then they also eventually started attacking people directly as opposed to just pretending to be someone else. Right.
4: Mm-hmm. And so they started attacking women directly at the point at which basically black women online were like, This is not us. This does not sound like us. No one who is actually a black feminist believes this. These are fake accounts. And they started this hashtag. um, Anasa Crockett and Shafika Hudson started this hashtag called Your Slipper Showing, where they would tag fake accounts and say, these are not real people. And at that point basically 4chan caught on to the fact that they were caught out and these two women and the black women who rallied around these two women were attacked by this community and Twitter basically did nothing about it.
0: Right. Twitter did nothing about it. And this is when Twitter was saying that they're free speech absolutists, right?
4: Yeah, this is around that time. The Twitter PR people are kind of spotty about when they instituted their policies when I asked about it. And so um, at this point, It's before Gamergate, so they haven't really done a whole lot. And they're very much like we are a platform of free speech, which obviously makes an opening for people to do terrible things under the name of free speech, as these women found out.
0: Right. And so Twitter didn't take them seriously. Journalists didn't take them seriously either, right? Like Gamergate yeah, didn't become so, a harassment issue until um, kind of white women in in video game journalism were kind of voicing issues, right?
4: Yeah. So Zoe Quinn is kind of the primary target of Gamergate, and, and with
0: all, re- I say this with all respect to people who are victims of Gamergate, by the way.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, but the thing is, the women who were targets of Gamergate very much acknowledged that. Your slip is showing and the black women who noticed this beforehand are very much a part of this history. So it's not even the women who are targeted themselves. It's just media wanted a beginning point basically to pinpoint when online trolling became an issue when they chose Gamergate.
0: Right. And so, I mean, what what can we learn from this now?
4: Yeah, I think the primary lesson from this story is listen to black women. Yes. I think that very much the people who are most vulnerable, the people who... Society most wants to paint as crazy and historical are more often than not telling the truth about what they're experiencing. And at some point, what black women and marginalized people and trans people are experiencing online is going to trickle down to the rest of people who are like on Twitter. And it happened in the 2016 election where journalists were receiving the same kind of pylons that these women had been experiencing for years. And so if people had listened in 2014, It wouldn't have been as big of an issue two, three, four years later.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe the advocacy would be more coherent and and this would be something that we've already had attempted to fix as opposed to trying to fix it now. Mm hmm. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing some insight into your reporting and your fantastic story on this. I really recommend people read it because it's just essential to understand that the tactics that we're grappling with now that are calling into question how to regulate some of the most powerful companies in the world and how to make sure that people are safe and having healthy and productive conversations. These are not questions that started in 2016. And they're actually questions that started in communities that are among the most marginalized in (laughs) so many aspects of life, and we really need to take their concerns seriously. And this is a fantastic reminder, in fact, an essential reminder, that when people are saying that something isn't right, uh, even if we can't empathize with their experience, we need to listen to them because uh, it could presage something that we're all going to deal with later on. Thank you so much, Rachel. It's great having you on with us.
4: Thanks for having me on, April.
0: Alright, that's our show. You can email us at ifthen@slate.com. at slate.com, send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hello. You can follow me and Siva on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser. And Siva is at Siva Vade. That's S-I-V-A-V-A-I-D. Thanks again to our guests, Lorenzo Franceschi Bicieri. You can follow him on Twitter at Lorenzo F-
1: And thanks to everyone who has left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or on whatever platform you use to listen to this show. We really appreciate your time. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, which is a partnership among Slate, Arizona State University, and New America.
0: If you want more of Slate's tech coverage, sign up for the Future Tense newsletter. Every week you'll get news and commentary on how tech advances are changing the world in ways small and large. Sign up at Slate.com slash Future News.
1: Our producer is Cameron Drews. Thanks also to our engineers, Tofa Ruth at UC Berkeley and Robert Armengall at the studios of Virginia Quarterly Review in Charlottesville, Virginia.
0: Okay, we'll see y'all next week. And this is our last episode for the time being with Siva. It's been great having him for the last two weeks. Next week, Meredith Broussard, a professor at NYU, will be joining us to co-host. Bye, everybody.